0: Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula.
1: I am Mark Karjula, CEO and lead faculty here at Modern Pain Care. We make you guys the complete clinician in your practice. I am excited to be joined by the esteemed CJ De Palma and
2: Jared Hall today. CJ, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Can you guys hear me okay? I'm hear kind me. of like in my garage. I got family here. Everyone's sleeping. So. You um, got Duke next to you. so. Duke is always next to me, man. Duke is always next to me. My buddy. Good boy, that Duke. Um, yeah.
1: CJ, you're gonna lend some some nice perspective because you probably mm-hmm. know this this divide, or I shouldn't even say divide, because hopefully we're gonna make it today to understand that it isn't really a divide. It's something yeah. that's really work in harmony. But we'll be excited for your perspective to kind of your thoughts are from the whole pain and biomechanics thing. Cause obviously with your CrossFit coaching and, and movement coaching practice, it'll it'll be a, a nice perspective to have. So thanks for joining us sure. this morning. Jared, how are you doing there, my friend?
3: I'm doing fantastic, man. As you can see, the sun is just rising right now. It's shining bright. It's gonna be a gorgeous day here in Texas. We're gonna hit like 93 degrees. And it's I'm kinda I'm kinda excited about it because we've had some hail and some nasty weather and it's just been like thirty mile an hour winds for the last few days. So I'm I'm pretty pumped about today and I'm excited to be on alive talking about two of my favorite topics with two of my favorite people.
2: Well, you're going to make me blush now. Uh, I'm already you. blushing. I'm always blushing.
3: Yeah, that's, why, that's why you wore the red
2: shirt, right? So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> for,
1: for, for those of you who are brave enough to read the entire Joel Seedman, I and I per, just heads up, I don't know Joel Seedman per, personally. He may be the most kind gentleman all the time but that was a pretty long brutal read as far as not that it was bad content but just very long and maybe it could have been a little bit more succinct in my opinion but irregardless uh that uh, was a, a challenging article but then we also posted some articles from uh todd, todd hargrove as always uh, you know todd's a, a friend of ours and so we have some bias there of course but uh todd had a nice response that i thought was very very direct but also just kind of address things in a professional kind of respectful manner hopefully we can keep things respectful today i'm going to try to harness jared and, and cj's uh vitriol today as much as i can uh and then of course jared uh went on physio network and did a blog with uh, sam spinelli and i think tim Rowland on some of the nuance of this discussion hopefully we can get into that today because uh uh, it is one of those discussions that usually gets to be this dichotomous polarized, you know, I hate you, you hate me, I'm right, you're wrong type discussion. Uh, and our patients often just get sit there scratching their head like, I don't know what these guys are all yelling and arguing about. So uh, CJ, just uh, let's start with you, because again, you navigate this probably uh, on a daily basis, maybe more than uh, my practice. I see my share of, uh, you know, athletes and higher performers, but m- majority of my practice is more the, uh, you know, persistent pain maybe not on that athletic continuum as high as as maybe your practice, but I'm just curious what's been your experience. Cause you've been out in practice a bit, but I'm just curious what your experience has been with this whole debate and kind of where you're kind of, where you come from on that uh, debate yourself.
2: Yeah. You know, I've come from, you know, I mean, I've been on, I I was like in the, like the Joel Seedman mindset. My first uh, slogan for the movement doctor was, uh, improving the quality of life through posture, rehab and biomechanics. I mean, that's like legit what it said. And um, obviously those things have changed and uh, um, and you know, it's been a progressive uh, change over the last three years, as far as not so much devaluing those things, but just, just reapproaching them and, and using a different narrative of how we talk about them and the importance of them and, and how much of a factor they, uh, they can be. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things that we have to understand is like, it's not black and white, right? Like these things do matter just maybe not in the same, um, spectrum as we once thought, right. Or the same weights. And it also depends on the goals, you know, like I still teach people how to squat every day, every day, no matter what, you know, and then we talk about, you know, feed out, you know, medial, uh, load loading strategies, uh, you know, pronation, etc., And, if they're new to fitness we change that and we work on that right we don't avoid it we're not just like hey you know this is going to be fine it probably would be fine it would probably work itself out but we really prioritize working and focusing on those things but not because you know we think they're going to get injured but because they're novice and I think that's a big play to a lot of this stuff that um that, you know we're going to talk about is the the training age of a lot of these people and these references are just different and it makes a difference. in like what the goals are right. And biomechanics and and what their daily life looks like. So, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, I think training is a good thing, uh, you know, to talk about Camilla. Thanks for joining us. Um, because we we see different continuums, like, and if you're in Joel Seedman's uh, world where you're seeing more athletes, performers and stuff, uh, high load situations i think maybe things are different than uh maybe jared and i's world uh where and i know jared you might work with some more higher level stuff and we'll get to you here in a second but um this thought that it uh, is an all or nothing type thing is is what kind of scratches my head with it i'm curious jared where's your perspective on it where is it kind of you know where do you see this fit in your practice on this whole pain versus biomechanics debate
3: i mean i think that there's a couple of things that I, I, I want to say before we can even really have this discussion. And the truth of the matter is you can't have this discussion without context and, and really specific context. Uh, anybody that says biomechanics don't matter for pain doesn't understand pain very well. And anybody that says biomechanics and posture are the predominating reason as to why people have pain doesn't understand pain very well. Right? So, we have to define context and specific scenarios for when we're having this discussion. Um, you know if somebody is doing close to a, a, a one rep max squat and maybe they're relatively undertrained or maybe they're persistently overtrained and they're continuing to go into a movement pattern that puts tissues at maybe they're in range uh, of motion or maximum, you know, stretch or whatever it is, uh, or maybe goes into a position that's not um, the most biomechanically advantageous to produce force to perform that movement, yeah, they're probably going to be at an increased risk of injury. And maybe they're gonna be at an increased risk of overloading that tissue and uh, having it become reactive or sensitized. But if, uh, you know, I'm just a person sitting around going walking around going through my everyday life and I wake up and I have this terrible back pain and I bend over and I have this terrible back pain and I stand and I have this terrible back pain and I sit and I have this terrible back pain it's probably not my posture and it's probably not the biomechanics of what's going on there's probably a lot more complexity going on there so I don't think that we can have this discussion without laying out somewhat specific context and I think that uh, by a function of pain science, right, and by a function of the biopsychosocial model that George Engel laid out in 1979, bio and tissues and immunology and inflammatory factors and loading and movement factors are definitely part of a person's experience and contribute into that to varying degrees for different people in different scenarios. Um, So I just... I'm really tired of people using sound bites and people with, uh, you know, a limited study and knowledge into quote unquote pain science, making sweeping claims about what pain science people think and what pain science is and what pain science means. and. Uh, the fact of the matter is if you talk to any quote-unquote pain scientist, you talk to Laura Mermosley, you talk to Adrian Lowe, you talk to Clifford Wolf, you talk to, you know, if you were able to talk to Pat Wall and, and people like this, they would never say, they would not be quoted as saying, oh yeah, movement and biomechanics and what's going on with somebody's biology, that doesn't matter for pain, it's all in your head. They would literally never say that. <laughs>
1: Yeah. It, th- th- I always head scratch because there's like these uh, and I have yet to see it. And I'm, I'm, if any of you guys have seen it who are watching here, I mean, I'd love to link it in the comments below, but I've never seen this this discussion of pain is all in your head and biomechanics don't matter ever from any of the folks that I've learned pain science from, uh, the Adrian Lowe's, the David Butler's and all those folks. I think we've pumped the brakes on it becoming the end all be all cure all of all people because we've been coaching that stuff for a long time for a lot of people. I mean, I, I I always joke like I've put some serious people in movement jail for a long period of my career because I thought that that there was a specific way that everybody should move. Now, in CJ's situation, if he's coaching CrossFit where there's high load situation, darn right, there's probably the best way, most efficient way to move for that person. Um, But like you watch videos and you see clients who have like massive amounts of fear avoidance and kinesiophobia. And the last thing they need to do is be constrained by more movement rules in their life. And I'm I, I working in a persistent pain setting and persistent pain practice. I see people who, if anything, have to let go of this proper movement belief or this 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 belief that there's a perfect biomechanically safe way to move um, because it can be disabling. But again, I think you you touched upon it nicely. There's a lot of, to the context. What is the context that person brings to your encounter? Uh, the, do they have a, a very adaptive view on movement and are they completely yeah you know I can bend I can let my back bend to pick up this pencil or are they like doing a you know perfect uh you know deadlift without any you know loss of lordosis and trying to pick up a pen or doing the golfer's pickup and refusing to let their spine move into any sorts of flexion again I th- to, to make it some sort of uh, dichotomous all or nothing discussion I think you know one it just kind of you know he emphasizes the our clinical expertise and the actual thing between our ears where we have to actually think about what's going on in this clinical scenario, instead of just like making these sweeping generalizations that if you have a pulse and pain, you're going to get these movement rules prescribed to you, which I will really say that was kind of, because that was the way I operated early in my career. It was my little safety net of, you know, had something to do with somebody coach these rules up and had taken a lot of courses in that type of stuff. But obviously pain science hasn't really, uh, has shown us that it's it's a lot more than that, um, and that, yeah. that can be very disabling. I'm just how's how's it evolved with you? I know you've mentioned a little bit of how it's evolved with you and your in some of in your, your slogan and, and some of your your byline and your in your brand, uh, CJ. I'm just curious how how do you see it play out in the cross? I've I've been fortunate to be involved in a little bit of your Wad Prep Plus group, which has been mm-hmm. an amazing group for some of the us elder masters yeah. in cross. Sure. I, it's been interesting just to kind of sit on the sideline and watch some of the discussions that go on. Cause you know, I see the same thing there that I see that comes into my practice. I'm just curious, how how do right. you navigate that within your, your, your client base?
2: Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing, you know, people come in and, and I mean, all the time. Right. So we had, let's give an example, right. In the group and this, uh, this woman who's had uh, like a reoccurring um, subluxations of the shoulder, right. Very, very uh, like, true instability you know such so you know it's come out five or six times and uh and all she does is you know she's been prescribed stretching and then to avoid you know been told to avoid all of these all of these movements right but it's never come out during activity it only comes out when she sleeps which is really weird sorry there might be some like history issues there or something like that but but you know and and she's just been like fear-mongered into avoiding you know like don't do crossing it's like well you know, so she saw a chiropractor and he was adjusting her. And I'm just like, well, you know, there's just not a lot of logic that a lot of people get, you know, and there's just a lot of like misinformation. There's just like this gap of, okay, so why would, why are you prescribed this? What do you think the reasoning is? And then, you know, the answer is just because that's what everyone does. Right. And so, um, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest thing that I see, right. Is, you know, the whole Kelly Starrett and supple leopard and this like, perfect movement, you know, the toes straight movement. And I have, I, I legit just had like an Instagram post that like was, I was doing the toes straight movement and I squat with my toes straight. Right. I'm not going to say I don't like, and I've worked for a long time to do that. Um, uh, does it spin out all the time for sure. Right. And that's, what's comfortable. But for me, right. It's, it's again, it's like that movement mastery. And I think that's really, really important to kind of understand. But for the majority of people, I think that, um, you know, they just, they just go with like what everyone does, you know, and, and, and it just, God, I, I would say the biggest issue that we see now is this like mo- just continuing like the mobility thing that, you know, more mobility yields less pain and, uh, less risk of injury. And, and I think that's what I deal with the most and like wad or wad and, and these like stretching routines at night. And, um, and to be honest, I've seen I mean, I've seen a lot of people get get hurt. You know, you take tissue to end range passively for 4 minutes at a time, coming out of it like you're you're super sensitive, you know, sensitized, and it's like I can't do it. I've I did them a, a long time ago and I just my hips got more painful, my shoulders got more painful and and I was like, well, let's just stop stop doing this, you know. And I think it's progressed from looking at improving you know pure mobility is just like improving mastery of positions right you want to squat better let's squat and, and you know when we take the complexity that people believe of like how hard it is to reach this like movement mastery and we make it very simple it's like okay you know my overhead's really terrible i have turbo mobility it's like all right well instead of all these things let's just be overhead right and people really resonate well with that especially in this because they can do that themselves and they feel like they have a little bit more control in the CrossFit world and this is in the, pa- you know, the, the, the I was going to say the passable, world, the normal, the non-CrossFit world. Uh, and and I think that's been like one of the biggest um, leaps is like just giving someone something simple that they can do on their own to reach their goals that they're, they're looking for. Cool
1: jared uh kind of take off on that i mean how do you see that play in your practice as far as kind of the, the nuance of weaving in and out of those roles of maybe being a very specific movement coach and uh, like cj is with a lot of his clients who are you know looking for high performance uh, versus maybe you know uh, the, a 75 year old uh, woman who just wants to be able to you know navigate her home comfortably to do her day-to-day adl so i'm just curious uh, if you can shed some light on how this whole biomechanics pain discussion might kind of interchange as you kind of navigate different clients, huh.
3: I want to. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> ready, ready, go. Yeah, um, you know it's gosh, it's it's uh, it's difficult to to give an answer because I think that you this is probably something in which you need a framework for you need, you need a thought process for, you need a mindset of approach that helps you tailor what you're doing uh, with that person to that specific person, kind of like CJ mentioned. And, you know, for, for somebody very, uh, for somebody that maybe is a high-level CrossFit athlete or maybe somebody that's just a, a, a uh, an avid gym-goer or maybe a tennis player or a, a golfer or whatever it is, there are definitely mechanical tweaks that you can make and adjustments to a person's posture and adjustments to a person's movement pattern that is going to make them more efficient, that's going to... Um, You know reduce the loss of more energy that's going to make them be able to lift weight more weight it's going to make them be able to hit a ball further it's going to make them be able to uh maintain their balance when they lift something off the floor i mean but for me mechanics in the absence of pain mechanics is typically about performance and in the presence of pain it kind of leads to the discussion and the question of is this pain or is this injury right and i think that one of the things that i got from uh you know we started by talking about joel stephen's article one of the things that i got it from that is that it appears to me that uh joel really thinks that or views the situation is that pain and injury are the same thing so if somebody presents with pain it's because something is wrong in their tissue. And if something is wrong in their tissue, it's because they move incorrectly or incorrectly load that tissue. And I think that if we are going to move forward further in this discussion, we probably have to have a conversation about the difference between pain and injury. And I'm going to be the first to raise my hand and say, I don't really know where you draw that line. At what point is something pain versus injury? Is it only injury if there's tissue damage and or is it only injury if there is measurable inflammation present because we have tons and tons of people who have you know these uh mri and x-ray findings and all of this sort of stuff in every joint in the body and they have you know tissue changes or things that we would classify as pathology but they but they don't really have a lot of pain and then cj mentioned earlier he's like man i was doing all this stretching stuff and really in range tissue loading and I wouldn't say that he was quote unquote injured. He probably didn't tear his joint capsule. He probably didn't uh, you know, create grade two muscle strains or ligament sprains. But what he did was he took a tissue into its in range tolerance and he loaded it over and over and over again for prolonged periods of time. And that made his nervous system super sensitive in that area. And it hurt probably really bad. It was really uncomfortable. But then you have to ask yourself, it, well, Is that an injury or is that a nervous system that's trying to say, hey bro, stop doing that crap that you're doing right now and change it up a little bit, move a little bit differently uh, for a period of time or more gradually load me into this. You probably did too much too fast type of deal. And again, is that injury or is that pain? So I can't can't in my mind move forward in the discussion without trying to determine uh, for that specific person are they are they painful and do they have sensitized tissue and do they have a really hyperactive immune system and do they have a really Uh, protective mindset over their body, which increases the release of cortisol and makes their system a little bit more primed to respond to certain movements, and they have crappy sleep history, and they blah, 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 right? It goes on forever. Like, is it a situation like that? Or does this person have like an acute tissue injury that does need to be, you know, unloaded and protected and healed and then reloaded in a different way. Like what's what's going on with this person in front of me Uh, on the spectrum of pain to injury if you can draw a line in the sand for that.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up some good points because that whole pain versus injury continuum. And what does an injury become pain? And it's just a pain-sensitive tissue that needs load. But that's where the nuance, and you nicely discussed a lot of your thought process of what you're thinking of, like what is this person bring to the table specific to them? What is their comorbidities? What is their uh, you know, history with pain? What's uh, you know, do they have signs of, you know, a pro-inflammatory uh, you know, type condition that they're they're dealing with? I mean, there's just a lot that you're thinking of, and then uh, clinically, a lot of times there isn't. It, well, vast majority of time there is not a black and white answer to that, and a lot of it is, you know, can you be, you know, judicious with application of load, with a good clinical reasoning process to s- and test, retest to see what's your client's response to load, and you know, if obviously if there is true tissue injury, we would expect that as load increased, pain would increase, but that nice diet, you know, you know. Uh, exact kind of response is likely not going to be there for a lot of patients, but I think we can definitely see trends that can help guide us with it. Um, I just, you know, struggle that there's still this belief that it's just this all or or, or none thing. And there's just so much nuance to that discussion. There's so much that you should be thinking and reasoning around with it. But, um, how do you approach that whole, because I mean, it's, and again, this is a massive question, CJ, and I love (laughs) you, buddy, but, um, how do you navigate that pain versus injury continuum? Like, how do you know, like, what is it, what are the things you're doing in practice to kind of determine whether a, hey, this thing's ready to start loading up? Cause I think traditionally a lot of us, including myself, especially I, you know, was very pain contingent and, you know, Oh my God, it's sure. loading. It hurts. Oh, you know I mean? Yeah bail out and you know pain everything which for some people that can be a very poor way to to navigate their condition because it just makes everything more dependent on if they have a anything on that zero to ten scale which can be not good so how do you navigate that sir
2: yeah so um i think the biggest way is is like relating with my patients i think that's the most important thing is someone who's active and even so and, and I just want to be clear I do see people that aren't crossfit athletes I see normal humans as well guys I, and I see people that aren't performance driven um, maybe not as often but I do and uh, but um, but no I think one of the biggest ways that i've I've um, been able to help people is just by relating with them so like I have MRI confirmed torn labrums, both shoulders for I don't know one was high school so like two thousand and six and then one was pt school 2015 maybe and um i dove into a fence and this one ended up uh well it was consistent with uh, i was in a, a rotation i was seeing a lot of baseball players and i played baseball and so i started throwing again for the first time in years and i had already started crossfit so just like way overload of tissue and i mean i started getting pain like you know i was finishing PT school and I couldn't even lift my arm up more than here. Like it just like was nothing was happening and I was in pretty large amounts of pain. Um, but I'm in no pain now. Right. And I do muscle ups and snatches and I train and, and all of these things, you know, football, baseball, no, no issues. Do I have pain? You know, when I, after I train, yeah, I'm super sore, but I try to relate with people and, and explain, you know, situations that, um, that I can personally explain really, really well. Right, of my own. So, you know, they're still torn, they don't heal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we try to like de-escalate this belief that, you know, the MRI or the image or the information they have, not that it's wrong, but that it might not be as severe, right? Or as um impactful. And that they have a lot more control over the situation than they think. And I think that's the biggest thing is people come in and they just feel helpless you know, and, and that might be drastic, but they feel, you know, they, they just, you know, we started working with another clinician and, uh, we, we vetted someone on a, a a remote consult a few days ago and really active guy. And he's, he's like 30 and he has some back pain and he has this tissue. He's got some, like, he got an MRI and has some degeneration between L5 S1 and, and, um, uh, L 405 and, and he's like, how can we make that less degenerative? And like, you know, that was the only thing he could think about. And, uh, and so the whole session, we just tried to chat with him about, you know, maybe just like de-emphasizing that and, you know, emphasizing the fact that his training style was get hurt, rehab himself, floor it and peak, and then do it again. Right. And, you know, like Jared said, just too much too soon. And, and so much of it boils down to that of just like dosing is very important, you know, even for like the, the mechanics and the posture thing and the best posture, the best biomechanics argument, I think on the planet is Usain Bolt and how in, uh, you know, inefficient he technically was from the start, you know, lots of valgus and collapse and force production and things like that. And you can measure it and everyone's like, we can make him faster. And it's like, but you probably couldn't. Like there's probably no way that that was ever going to happen. Like no matter, unless you put jets behind him, you know, or put the wind at 30 miles an hour at his back, he just wasn't going to happen. And, you know, even for those people that are really high performing, if they've been doing it for a long time, the same way, and they haven't had injuries related to training, then they're probably okay outside of this like perfect construct of movement that, that's been created for them. Like snatching is a great example. Some people, like I mean, you know, and and, and I, I use those examples a lot because there's just a lot of uh, different schools of thought. Well, the the Eastern Europeans snatch internally rotated. I mean, they they take all their weight here, right? The Americans all here. None of us have trained this for our lifetime, so it's like here, let's just put a hundred kilos over our head or two hundred pounds and just do it here. I can't even put the bar and put my shoulder here. Not because I just, I'm just i just not conditioned to do that. I think I'm physically strong enough, but I've never done that before. So I think relating and, and uh, giving them hope, I think has been the, the biggest thing that, yeah, these things are real and they have an effect, but it's probably a lot less. And let's look at the big picture and see maybe what other factors might be causing this, you know, this uh, episode of pain. Right, because I don't see a lot of acute people, hardly ever. Most everyone is like, even even for my the higher level athletes, they're all persisting. Almost every one of them, or persisting, like reoccurring, uh, intermittent kind of thing. So,
1: good points, um, Jared. You spoke to this whole concept of the envelope of function in in the blog that we kind of posted, and I think that kind of comes in well here because how do you use that with with folks when you're kind of determining. You know because CJ brings up a good point like uh, Usain Bolt uh, could could navigate poor biomechanics because he loaded it at a level that his body adapted to to where that was a very efficient mode of movement for him even though it didn't look good versus a, a movement purist maybe standpoint but um and then yet somebody who is a you know less Uh, athletic, less adapted person may take those same biomechanical positions and it may create pain. I'm just curious, how do you, what are your, well, how do you approach that thought process with folks and, and kind of determining proper biomechanics? Again, I, I, these are just really tiny questions with very simple answers. So, you know, I'll give you five (laughs) seconds and go.
3: Yeah. You know, I'm actually glad that you, you went to that question because as CJ was talking. uh, one of the things that occurred to me again was another uh, central premise that I took from uh, Joel's article was, you know, my perspective and perception on it was that uh, it almost seems like that narrative that people speak through about, you know, the the staunch uh, posture biomechanics crowd. almost don't view the human body as is really adaptable and or or they selectively view the human body as adaptable like it can only positively adapt if you move the way that i think that you should move and i i with my naked eye, I'm smarter than millions of years of evolution in your body and your specific structural framework and your specific, you know, comfort with movement. So that's kind of what I get is like, if you do it right, you'll get stronger and better. But if you're 5% off, you're going to get hurt and you're not going to adapt to that. So to me, it's like a... Yeah, I, I, I almost don't want to say this, but it's like a narcissistic way of viewing the human body that only you are smart enough to know how it should move and how it's capable of adapting rather than uh, cross-applying the principles that you use in prescribing training and movement and exercise to the fact that the human body might be able to adapt in other ways. Uh, it's
2: definitely a narcissistic way. <laughs> definitely I mean it is for sure it has to be I mean to to think that you're the only answer to the question is is insane sorry I didn't interrupt
1: and I'm sorry to interrupt you and I'll get back to but I think it becomes when you when you brand your method that because you marry it and you fall in love with it too much to recognize that you know not everybody fits and there's so much variability and people can adapt to a lot of variability and just look at the human's Go mall watching of humans walking, moving, and doing things, and you'll see a lot of variability and a lot of people in no pain. But continue, Jared. Sorry.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that leads to the the next step is like not only are humans adaptable and they can adapt to a range of things, and you know, th- there's there's outer limits of the range of adaptability, absolutely. But you know, we kind of want to keep it in that you know to steal from Scott Morrison that sloptimal zone, that zone that is pretty dang good for them. Uh, But it doesn't have to be quote-unquote perfect because we can can adapt in there. But then there's also the natural variability in just human bodies that you just alluded to, Mark. I mean, Tom Purvis has a cool video, you know, everybody's seen it, the little mechanical squat guy where he lengthens the tibias or lengthens the femurs or lengthens the trunk. And all of a sudden squat mechanics look different. If you have really long tibias or you have really long femurs, your mechanics might look a little bit different. Or, you know, there's a wonderful lecture by Stu McGill, actually, about uh, the anatomy of the pelvis and the acetabulum in particular and depth of acetabulum and position on the pelvis dictates how a person might squat. And these are things that aren't brought up in common discussion about posture and biomechanics, because as a a factor of anatomy, optimal movement is probably going to be a little bit different from person to person. And certain movements are going to be just a ton more difficult to perform and perfect for one person versus the next person. And that's okay. That's why some people are professional gymnasts and some people are professional basketball players. They have, a, they have an anatomy and a, and a makeup that makes them predisposed to excel at certain things within you know, that realm. Uh, but you, you asked me specifically about the envelope of function. And, you know, my introduction to that came from reading some of Scott Dye's work. He has a 2005 or 2008 paper on the application of the tissue homeostasis model to patellofemoral pain syndrome, right? And there's a lot of talk of the envelope of function. um, And as it relates to a healthy person versus an injured person, and it's all about trying to adequately load people you know if you have your graph you have safe load and then a level up you have the zone of super physiologic overload where if you train in this consistently your body will positively adapt and it will become stronger more resilient more robust if you go over that consistently then you're going to be overloading and overtraining. if you jump way up over that really fast you're probably going to have a pretty severe acute injury and you know, super high level people that have trained up their envelope function is way up here. And maybe some of our persistent pain folks, maybe some of the average folks that just don't load their bodies that often, their envelope of function is down here. So maybe their mechanics do have to, uh, for a certain movement, have to be a little bit more precise in their volume and their dosing, like uh, CJ mentioned earlier, does have to be a little bit more precise. But as their envelope of function comes up, maybe they have more wiggle room and, and, and slotable zone underneath that zone of that's super that's physiologic neat. overload. But you know, I don't. I, I could go on and talk about that forever, and I don't want to ramble on and
1: on and on. Slopped them all. I like uh, a little Scott Morrison. Tip of the cap too. Scott's. Obviously, one of the bigger, better thinkers out there. If you get a chance to check out Scott Morrison's stuff, uh, he's doing some good stuff with physiopraxis, uh, I believe. Is the, mm-hmm. something to follow on. Uh, he does some great stuff on Instagram. I believe he's got some work on Facebook and Twitter as well. So definitely check out Scott if you want to uh, get some very science-based, uh, reasoned, well-reasoned approaches to movement and loading as well. Um, Lizette, I'm going to try to address this question. I'm going to read it I, and hopefully I'm, I'm uh, interpreting it well for, for you. And by the way, I want to thank uh, Amy, Eric, Manzoor, Camilla. Thanks you guys for all, all joining us. Okay. Lizette's question. I'm going to try to tackle it. And then if any of you guys want to jump into this before I go for it, uh, what are your each of your thoughts? If not structural and just disruptive at the sensory level, I think, and we'll how do you each classify nerve dysfunction? These are a lot of these are heavy questions. What Ooh. if they're moving or not moving and being functional, although hyperreactive due to other factors such as post workout and thus logically dysfunctional at the cellular level, so I'm guessing this might be endocrine immune, you know maybe some comorbid issues, maybe some you know dysfunctional homeostatic mechanisms based on maybe a specific condition. I don't know. And if I'm off base here, Lizette, you let me know. Have any of you the belief there is rational or reactive consciousness at the and thinking at the cellular level for lack of better words, or do you feel that all thinking and adaptability is that brain level, if otherwise structurally intact. I, if we just listen to the adaptability, I'm going to go there as far as I, I don't think we can, str- we can say it's just a strict tissue homeostasis model because this, these model that's where, when we want to compartmentalize like the PNS, CNS, the tissues, the brain, you know, the nervous system, musculoskeletal system, it's nice to learn that way. Cause that's how we're all taught. Uh, and it's the only way we can really probably grasp the, the breadth and, and complexity of information. But uh, you know, these things don't sit on an island i think adaptability there's definitely some local tissue homeostatic you know uh, you know things that go on wolf's law the applied stresses to tissues and all the things that we maybe think about tissue biomechanically wise but that definitely can't live on an island away from what's the what's the ecosystem of that human looking like with at the cellular level at the in, at the brain level of of what's what's being kind of homeostatically driven at an immune endocrine uh, and nervous system perspective so uh, to kind of classify nerve dysfunction. That's a tough one. I mean, we don't really have the ability to classify it nice and neat and tidy as we do maybe animal studies. It would be probably ethically challenging to to plug into somebody's nervous system real time. Um, uh, that will probably wouldn't fly in an IRB, but um, I hope that answers your question. It's a, it's a, it's a big question and I'm happy to, you know, if you want, message us or, or message me, and I'm happy to discuss it further. But, um, a good question though. I think when we think of adaptability, I don't think it's strictly a, a tissue based thing that we're looking at. There's probably some cognitive adaptability too. And I'm sure you see that, CJ, as well. It's, it's the, as far as like people's beliefs and movement oh, confidence yeah. and the removal of the kinesiophobia of, um, you've coached me on a snatch, uh, in my, in my rookie CrossFit life. And I, that barbell kind of scared me when I was chucking it up overhead as far as kind I mm-hmm. control and all those things. And I will for surely say for me, it was, there was a huge amount of cognitive adaptability that I sure. had to get through, but I'm just, you see that a lot too, as far as when you think adaptability, but it's more than just at the tissue level.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I've, that question is probably well outside of my understanding of pain. I don't think I'm on y'all's level of it. I try to be, um, you know, but, uh, but, but I definitely think that um, your belief patterns are going to play a role. I mean, I have people come to me all the time and they're like, yeah, you know, I, I had a really rough week. I'm like, why? Wow. Like I wasn't thinking of like, you know, the outside of my foot when I squatted and I'm just like, what? like that? That's why you had, that's like, that's why you had a rough week. They were like, I could feel my knee coming in and I'm like, and it just hurt. Like, no, but, but I know it's really bad. And then like, I had, was really in a bad position, you know, like 48 hours later. And I'm like, what if you weren't right? Like, what if, what if that wasn't it? What if it's not that minute or what if it's that not specific, what if it's not that specific? And, um, but all the time, hundred percent, you know, people are like, oh, if I don't do my mobility work, I just can't, it's like the whole foam <laughs> rolling before moving thing. You know, I can't, you've created this, um, limitation to yourself that if you don't do it a specific way there's there's a zero percent chance for success and and we see that all the time especially in performance and i think that's just setting ourselves up and and you know and um to to you know i think answer a little bit of it these belief patterns you know and they create you know so we have fear right and so maybe we have like increased you know cortisol levels. So now we have an inflammation. So now like we can create a biological response for, you know, via our belief patterns and vice versa. Right. You know, if we have positive reaction to a situation, even though it might not be the consistent movement pattern that you're, you're striving for, if we can get that, like, Oh, well, you did it a little bit different and you didn't have any pain. Then we start like unlocking this window and, or, or the box, right. The movement, the movement box or jail called the movement jail. Right. And so um, I think that's really important, but that like, that can be, you know, that like eventually, if, again, like you said, if we could tap in could be measured biologically as they're moving, right. We would see different blood markers and, or reduced, um inflammatory response, you know, to certain things. But if someone is that fearful and that uh, concerned with their movements, they can create, you know, a, an inflammatory response to something that is within the slantable zone. I mean, that's like, but we would assume is like, probably fine. You look at them, that looks okay. And like that hurt really bad. And it's like, well, maybe it's not a movement thing. Maybe it's something completely different.
1: Good points. I think, you know, the whole research and we're seeing, you know, more blood marker studies and looking mm-hmm. at cytokine levels and different immune system markers when we start measuring the effects of interventions. But I think again, we have to be careful to, to, to just think that there's one factor that's changing. Music. Right immune system markers and different things like we said it could be definite uh, tissue conditioning uh you know top down modifiers from uh, what's going on up top but uh uh any other points you have to add jared i want to i'm gonna probably wrap this up just for the sake of respecting your guys' time and uh, those who are watching. Um, and I appreciate everybody who's tuned in today. We've had uh, a good group of folks uh, who've been watching so far. Um, any any uh, thoughts you have when it, if, if you were to summarize this whole debate and, and what we've kind of spoke about today? And in, in, in again, in, in 10 seconds, please. <laughs>
3: uh, well, I was, I was going to um, just echo some of the things that you guys said uh, in response to Lizette's question that I don't think that you can uh I don't think that I classify um neural issues any different than any other tissue from a tissue homeostasis perspective I just think that we tend to treat neural issues differently because they present so much differently they they have you know a different pathway to the brain and they have a higher density of of receptors and you know all of that sort of stuff than maybe other tissues do and because they create a different quality of pain and they create a different uh, um, symptom cascade with tingling numbness all this sort of stuff buzzing whatever uh, I think that we tend to look at them differently but there is still a tissue that is 50% fat, 50% uh, collagen, essentially connective tissue, ligament tissue, so it, it becomes more robust. It, it becomes more and less sensitive. It changes its you know receptor density and all of this sort of stuff in response to load as well. I mean, that's why we do you know, neurodynamics. is because we gradually expose a nerve to mechanical load and first we slide it and then we tension it and then we tension it harder and then we tension it under time to make it less sensitive and, you know, change its its envelope of function up as well. Um, I'm gonna take a quick stab at the uh, cellular level of thought component of the uh question because i have read a little bit about this and um you know this is just my opinion and the opinion of some researchers is that um thinking is probably something that only happens uh at the sentient being level um so what we see on a cellular level is probably more of evolutionarily designed programs that are stimulus response driven rather than a level of actual thought but us as sentient beings looking for patterns in observing other things tend to liken them to ourselves and retrospectively apply the thought process of this looks like it's thinking. I see a connection between what I do and how I respond to stimuli and how it responds to stimuli. Uh, So it's easy to make that jump, but there's not really any evidence that on the cellular level, single cellular organisms to complex small organisms or tissues uh, think but they do react and respond to stimulus outside of our conscious control and awareness. Um, so hopefully that uh, answered some of that.
1: that I'm going to, That was that was deep, man. I honestly you've read more (laughs) on that topic than I have. I I think you and Lizette need to sit down, have a nice discussion about it because it sounds like you both are well schooled, and then I'd be interested to hear what you guys come out with it. But I I mean, um, there's definitely I will not lie to say I've read into that specific topic of of kind of the the human organism, but I think obviously sounds like some interesting stuff that uh, could could result in a long conversation. And then Lizette said, PM me your thoughts on epigenetic adaptation. So, um, epigenetics, a whole nother thing, because I do think obviously our gene, gene genotype has kind of switched on and off, depending on our life and our experience and our environments and the context that we bring to each encounter. So, and what context we've experienced in the past, but not going to go there. And again, to respect both of you guys' time, big things I want to hopefully get across is that, you know, and I've heard this in manual therapy discussions as well as like when pain science entered and, you know, manual therapists are like, Oh, you're just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're just not touching people and you're just talking to people. And maybe that happened. And I can probably Relate to some episodes of my earlier applications of pain science where I maybe went into psychosocial realms and just forgot that, hey, I still need to be a good orthopedic, examining red flag screening, a good physical examination, uh, performing a clinician, and not just default to talking to people about pain, even though if you see a lot of those things, you still got to do you know what our our basics well. And I th- think sometimes that becomes the same way with like maybe what Joel was noticing in his profession. I know he was more referring to his personal training colleagues as far as that people were just, you know, just throwing away movement coaching and just talking to people about pain and just move however you want with a deadlift and, you know, splatter your annulus on the back wall uh, with that kind of behavior in his mind. But um, obviously there's a lot of nuance to it and it's based on the client. And hopefully what we've you've gained from this discussion is you can't just make it an all or none it's for some people yes movement's important for some people movement jail is the last thing they need of moving pr- appropriately and and there was a lot of nuance that cj and jared discussed nicely that hopefully you guys can understand and apply to your practice and for no person is going to be the same and there's just a lot of different thought processes a lot of different contexts that people bring that's why i think it's going to be eternally challenging for us to just nicely neatly control this into a nice rct it's just the human pain experience just has a lot of variables I play that does not fit into a empiricist view of, of, of the world and truth, in my opinion. So anyway, uh, I just want to thank both of you gentlemen for graciously and generously, uh, I should say, uh, offering your time this morning. Uh, hope you guys have a good rest of your day. Hope everybody who's watched this has enjoyed it. Uh, you guys all take care. This has been another episode of the Modern
0: Pain Podcast with Dr. Mark Cargela. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This This is the Modern Pain Podcast.